The Guardian. Greetings from Jaipur and the first big international literary festival of the year, where writers, thinkers, musicians, and the occasional politician congregate in the grounds of the grand Digi Palace to talk to audiences of thousands. I'm not exaggerating. I've crammed myself into a corner of the catering area to record this. You will probably hear some banging and bashing, but I'm afraid it's all part of the course. There is absolutely nowhere where there aren't people. It's a festival that gives a whole new dimension to the phrase free for all. Crocodiles of school children snake through crowds of Indians, Americans and Europeans, many of whom have flown specially in for this five-day binge of free culture. More than a quarter of a million people throng through the gates to listen to talks on everything from South Asia's various political crises to the Simpsons and Socrates. Yes, you heard me right, Socrates. I'm Bethany Hughes, the author, historian and broadcaster, and I've just been talking here in Jaipur about Socrates. I've written a book, The Hemlock Cup, Socrates Athens and the Search for the Good Life. And I have just had, I have to say, the best question session I've had in seven years with one particular gem where a young man stood up and said, OK, so I've just been listening to you and thinking about this scenario where what would have happened if Socrates had left the prison as he was enticed to, so he'd escaped, he'd come back to Athens, was freely philosophising, and you were writing your book in the 5th century BC and you had the chance to meet him what would be the single question you would ask him not as a modern woman but as a woman living in the 5th century BC and it's just the most fantastically imaginative question but I think it's still the same question actually I would ask him in the 21st century that I think really Socrates message is that there is nothing that matters other than being good and love so I think I would ask him Socrates what is love Bethany Hughes there one of the biggest crowd pullers, unsurprisingly enough, was the octogenarian Nobel Prize winner V.S. Naipaul. More than 5,000 people crammed onto the palace's front lawn to hear him discuss his life and work with the broadcaster Farouk Dondi. I suppose what I'm trying to say is that I had a great faith in myself and my talent, and I felt too that if I wasn't true to my talent, if I wasn't true to myself, that would be the end of me as a person, that I had to stay with my talent. And so that is what I did. V.S. Naipaul, and we'll have more from him later. But now let's hear from William Dalrymple, who's taken time out from his own career as an award-winning historian and travel writer to co-found and direct the festival. Why, I wondered, has it been so successful? That, in a sense, is the challenge of programming this festival well, is, is, is thinking of the unexpected linkages. You know, they're very different subjects, all those, but um, to have that light bulb moment to think, actually, this will make a coherent session. And it was very interesting. I mean, Jesse Child's take on the gunpowder plot and the persecution of recusants, Catholic recusants in England, was one of the most popular sessions. I still, after 10 years of doing this, I'm constantly surprised by which sessions people turn up to and which ones they don't, you know, half empty. I mean, very few of them are half empty, but uh, certainly less, less packed. And I have to say that I would, I would have imagined that Catholic recusants in the north of England was going to be in the more recherche end of the programme and that uh, by programming it as, as terror and faith, 
uh, and, and pointing out this was this was a, in the title hinting that this was a direct precursor to the sort of bombings that go on in India and Pakistan every day and every week. It made it relevant. In a sense, my bit of the programming is very easy. I, you know, I invite Salman Rushdie or Naipaul and everyone turns up. They, you know, these are big names that everyone's heard of since childhood and, uh, and it's quite easy. Namata has this amazing ability to pull something... You know, whole, I, each year she produces her list and I've never heard of half the names. And I, and I spend a lot of time reading Indian literature and about Indian literature and I like to think of myself quite well read in this subject. But I, each year, at least half her list is completely uh, new to me. And she'll produce, one year she produced 35 Dalit, that's uh, untouchable poets from the Punjab. And I, and I thought this was slightly overdoing it, that we didn't necessarily need quite that many Dalit poets in one year. Um, and that, you know, maybe five would have, would have done the trick. But absolutely packed. It was, the, it was her big theme for that year. It turns out there's this massive literary renaissance going on among Dalits in the Punjab, of which I was completely unaware. Uh, and her sessions were, you know, we were getting four or five thousand people to turn up to listen to these guys. Uh, wrapped audiences, completely pin drop silence uh, in a country that doesn't do pin drop silence um, ever. <laughs> you, you put it together with an eye for a, for a news story, haven't you? I mean, you've had a strand, for example, on sexuality and gender, which which must be. Um, I have a feeling that it's quite out there for for India. We've had in the past three or four years when the the festival has been dogged by various sorts of controversy. Most famously the, the time that Rushdie had to cancel his visit here uh, because he was told that two assassins had left Bombay with sniper rifles, um, which is enough to make most people cancel an appearance at any book reading. A conspiracy theory has developed in India that we actually stage these controversies, that we seek out uh, controversies, because it did, you know, the Rushdie thing, although a catastrophe and, and something which was very, very tough to deal with at the time, uh, did nonetheless put our festival on the front page of every newspaper in the world. But I can genuinely say that we that, that is not true. We, we go out of our way to avoid uh, controversies. And it's very annoying when you... I mean, the same year that Rushdie came, and the other big headline here was Oprah coming. At the same time as all that was filling up all the media, there were amazing sessions going on every minute. Tom Stoppard and David Hare, um, three or four of India's most extraordinary poets together. Uh, we had Richard Dawkins and Stephen Pinker. I mean, all this stuff was carrying on. The halls were full to overflowing, we were having four or five thousand people per session. And none of this was being reported, all that was happening was this controversy. So no, I, I don't, don't seek out controversy. And uh, if some of the sessions are dealing with difficult issues, again, that's not a kind of deliberate policy. I don't go out to kind of sex it up. I, I, I have a very clear way of how the festival chooses its authors, which is we just go for, a, you know, number one, my favorite authors from anyone I, I just adore and want to hear be anyone that's won one of the big prizes this year. So, you know, we invite the entire Booker shortlist, anyone that's won a Pulitzer, anyone that's won a Nobel within the last 10 years gets invited here. And an awful lot of them take up the offer. William Dalrymple. One of my own favourite speakers so far has been the novelist and columnist Shoba Day, who ran rings around her male co-panellists in a session on masculinity. You've been writing for a very long time. Your, your book, um, Starry Nights, is, has just celebrated its 25th birthday. It's a classic. It's out all over the world. Right. You were one of the first women writers to write about sex yes. in the modern world. Yes. How do you think things have changed, particularly since you first wrote that? Depressingly enough, not too much. And uh, there is a huge resistance to women talking about sexuality in uh, a society like ours. It's still such a taboo subject. So whether it's our movies or it's, uh, it's books or paintings, 
any woman who tries to break that mold or the sort of uh, prescribed grid for what she's supposed to write, which is safe stuff, which is in the interests of society. It has to be good literature, which is uplifting. And sex is not considered uplifting enough as a topic. For me, it was very important because even the Kama Sutra is written by a man and it tells us how uh, men feel about uh, a sexual union. And it's very rare, except in some of our regional languages where we've had women poets, erotic poetry going back many centuries, but it's, it's not widely known in, in urban India, where they've talked about how they feel about their bodies, how they feel about uh, having sex. So for me, it was something that came just so naturally to break that barrier. I didn't think about it. It wasn't self-conscious. It's not like I set out to wave a flag and say, hey, look at me, I'm writing about sex and none of that. It was, seemed just the most important thing to write about at that point because I was just sick of being told how I'm supposed to feel uh, having, uh, having sex. Did you suffer any sort of backlash way back then? <laughs> An enormous amount of backlash. I still reel when people ask me about those early books. I mean, come on, you know, get a life that was uh, close to 30 years ago. I still write extensively on gender in my column. I've had a column called The Sexist in a popular weekly, English weekly. And I have people actually come up to me and say, oh, the title of your column is The Sexist, but where is the sex in it? So there's a lot of misunderstanding about uh, matters sexual generally in India and I can kind of understand it. It's still very taboo. There's been a lot of conversation about how different things are in India and in the West and yes. particularly with regard to sexuality which has become one of the strands of the festival. Do you think that that is straightforwardly true that things are better for Western women? Not at all. I think it's a load of rubbish because I see women, I travel extensively across the world, I speak across the world and I think the women's story is universal and it's the same no matter what culture you come from. Um, I see extraordinarily successful women in the West who are so insecure, so tormented. Uh, when I read um, Sandberg's book, for example, uh, and I read uh, Ariana Huffington and what she had to say more recently. And I'm saying to myself, I mean, these are ladies who are good looking, accomplished, successful. Why are they whining and why are they whinging and why are they still talking about strategies and tricks to kind of negotiate terrain? Uh, it should be stuff we should be able to take in our stride and take for granted. I don't want to be a wily bitch, you know, looking at, oh, what do I do next to trick the next man into thinking I'm not so terrible after all, I'm not a harridan, I'm just this uh, sweet, docile lady trying to do my job. Bullshit, I'm as competitive as you are, I want to do as well as you do, and I'm not going to apologize for it, and, you know, I want to be taken on my own terms. I don't want to act. I don't want to spend the rest of my life pretending to be something other than who I am. Just the same way men don't have to. Shobha Day. One thing that's emerged clearly from the festival is that Indians know what they like. An appearance by former president Dr. APJ Abdul Kalam was like a revivalist prayer meeting with hundreds of young people chanting mantras of self-belief. For those of us who aren't used to the sheer volume of people in India, it was a terrifying scrum, but it all seemed to pass off safely enough. Another of this young crowd's literary heroes is a writer virtually unknown in the West, but who sold millions of copies in India of his Shiva trilogy, an adventure story based on Hindu mythology. He's Amish Tripathi. 
you're here to launch your new book, which is the start of a series. You write series novels. Your Shiva trilogy, which was published by Quercus in the UK, but was relatively small, sold something like two million, more than two million copies in print in India. Do you count yourself as a YA, young adult author? I just count myself as an author because, uh, you know, when I was writing my, uh, when actually my first book was being sent around to publishers, it was rejected by every publisher it was sent to. I actually self-published my first book uh, in India. And the reason they gave, one of the reasons that they gave to me is they didn't know where to classify uh, my book. What genre would it be? Is it a mythological novel? Is it a religious philosophy novel? Is it an adventure thriller? Uh, They didn't know where to classify it. And that was one of the reasons that they rejected it. Yes, a large majority of my readers are youngsters, yes, but I also have older readers. Uh, I have uh, grandparents reading my books. They see something different in it because they see interpretations of our mythological tales, uh, the philosophies of the Upanishads or the Vedas in there, whereas the youngsters discuss the story with me. Uh, uh, I've been told it's a fast-paced adventure, uh, so they tell me that they enjoy that. Uh, So I have... I guess various groups of readers. We we have a, a, a bit of a, a joke in sort of li- among literary people about Dan Brown. Dan Brown has a bad name partly because of the sort of hokum of the mythology, but yours is grounded in a sort of real living mythology, a mythology that people still very much believe in. In the Western world, many of the ancient mythologies uh, are not living mythologies anymore. The Hellenic myths are are only just parts of stories now. The Kemet myths, the the myths of the ancient Egyptians are just stories now. Uh, Whereas in India, our myths are very much alive. They are thousands of years old, but they are very much alive. If you ask uh, uh, any Indian today, is Lord Shiva real? He'll tell you, yes, he is real. Um, So that is something that certainly makes writing in this uh, space very interesting in India because uh, we see myths not just as uh, as, uh, wonderful stories to listen to and enjoy, we also see myths as vehicles to learn philosophies on how to live your life. Uh, and uh, for us, that is the true purpose of a myth. The, the real uh, core is learning some philosophies. Uh, uh, the first book, The Sign of Ikshvaku, uh, will be launched sometime in 2015, uh, before my birthday certainly, uh, which is in October, uh, inshallah. There, and on the surface, once again, like the Shiva trilogy, this will be an adventure. Uh, it will be hopefully fast-paced adventure which you can read through very quickly, hopefully over a day or two. But there is a core philosophy that I am trying to convey uh, through the Ramchandra series as well. And the philosophy that I want to speak of is what makes for a good society. Most of us Indians, uh, we have this myth that's very deep in our hearts called Ram Rajya, the rule of Ram, uh, which means the perfect empire where things are run the way they should be run where everyone leads a fulfilled and happy life. Uh, surprisingly, we, you know, at least in the modern world, we didn't go deep into what does Ram Raja actually mean? What makes for a good society? How do you create a good society? And that's what I'm trying, that's a philosophy I'm trying to explore uh, through this series. On the surface, it will be an adventure. It won't be a philosophy thesis, but I'm trying to explore this thought and what are the choices you have to make to have a good society. Amish Tripathi there. Now you can probably hear a voice in the background and it is the voice of V.S. Naipaul who is one of the big headliners at least for the European and Western side of the audience. So let's just go down and listen in to a little bit of what he is telling people on the front lawns which is the biggest venue, absolutely huge people packed into it, standing, sitting, gossiping, drinking tea. 
haven't said this to you before, but I think Andre Deutsch was wrong about Miguel Street. I don't believe that it's a group of short stories. I believe it's a concatenation of writing that has an integral atmosphere and therefore is, you can't call it a novel, but then you have always played with form, haven't you? Yeah. Uh, from the same trove yeah. of material, yeah. you wrote The Suffrage of Elvira, yeah. which I believe was vaguely based on your mother's family and the politicians in Trinidad that it read. Yes, yes, yes. They were politicians, they were looking for verbs. And I went, I went with an uncle and uh, to one or two of his canvassing meetings and it occurred to me quite late that this was a good way of discovering material, traveling and finding people and to ask for their vote. It was a wonderful way to meet people. And so I wrote it, I wrote it, I wrote it. But then you came to a house for Mr. Biswas. Biswas yeah. was actually, with the veil of comedy, it's a very serious book. Very serious. It's a serious book and it has veins of tragedy feeding it. Yeah. yeah. Arteries, I should say. It is a serious um, book. Yeah. I don't... Tell us about it. What I used to tell people and tell myself in the very early days was that I had to begin small. An ambition, in the sense of a bigger book, would come to me in time, in time. And so that explains why I waited so long to start writing The House, you know? Yes. I waited a long time for that. Uh, again, there's nothing from that experience uh, the visitor here, it's a bit of luck, really. Yes, um, of course, you shouldn't say that. It's one of the great books of the century, as Hanif and Paul and Amit Chaudhry were saying from this very platform the other day. Yeah. And it's an unusual book in the, insofar as it doesn't imitate anything. And through all our conversations over the years, you always said that what the main thing about a writer is to be fresh. Yeah. I remember you saying that even Dickens went wrong when he began to repeat himself yes. and not be new. And I know it has been one of the credos of your writing that you wanted to write something new. And the first possibly very different book from the, from the novels was The Middle Passage, yeah. which is the rediscovery of the Caribbean islands. Yeah. How did that come about? Okay. It's a rather interesting story. I went back to Trinidad a few times, but one of those short visits, I was invited by the Prime Minister of Trinidad, Eric Williams, to lunch. And I went to this place and we had a, a very plain lunch, fried plantains, and a few other fried things. Delicious. A very fried lunch. And during this lunch, Eric Williams said I should write about 
the Caribbean. He talked a lot about the French islands, and that what everything he said about them excited me. I had no idea that we who were living close to those islands were so close to brutality and, and prejudice. I had no idea. And then I found something else, or found out about something else. I found that uh, you might think you can write about, do non-fiction about real places, but it's just as hard as writing a novel. I found that out. And so I had to learn again how to write about real events and real people and real places. So my life at this stage, up to this stage, was an affair of learning. I was learning how to write the stories, learning how to write the early comic books, and then I was learning how to write travel books. And this leads me to a point that my life as a writer was always a process of learning. Everything I wrote about was something I had to learn. And I don't know if this will help anyone in this audience. But a writer has to learn all the time. But that's what I felt about. Yes, I still so. I read An Area of Darkness when I was in college in Pune. And it struck me as the most remarkable description I had ever read of India because growing up in the 50s and 60s, I had absorbed Indian nationalism unquestioningly. And suddenly an area of darkness gave me the view that you can look at India differently and you can say things about its habits, its traditions, its prejudices, its middle classes, the decor of their homes, the way that Indians, how do we put it in India, commit nuisance um, on the streets. And uh, I know that the reaction was rather bad. Missim Ezekiel, a poet who used to be a friend at the time, I knew him in Bombay, um, said, oh, this is doing dirt on India and so forth. I don't know if you were aware of any of that reaction. Yes, but not at the time of writing. I, I was aware of it afterwards. And I was slightly bewildered by it, you know? Because clearly what I had written had been written out of a wish to be true to the facts of one's vision. And it was not written out of prejudice or anything like that. And yet, this was thrown out at me. So what I did, I learned to live with all of this. And the title is not, as some people think, writing about a dark area. It's writing about the darkness of a place which was presented to me all my life, a remote area. And I thought of that area as an area of darkness. I knew nothing about it. The inimitable V.S. Naipaul. 
He lives in the UK but's rarely seen in public. It's a reminder that sometimes you have to come halfway around the world to meet your literary neighbours. I've also always wanted to meet the Argentinian-born bibliophile Alberto Mangel, a man who read to Borges as a teenager is not to be sneezed at. I was keener than ever after hearing him talk, laying into everything from Amazon to Paulo Coelho. Your book, um, The Library at Night, was published in 2008. How do you think things have changed since then? That's seven years ago. In the world of libraries, the, the fight continues. The uh, <coughs> companies that promote electronic gadgets have set up certain characters called futurologists who visit administrators in universities and colleges to convince them that there is no need to have physical books in the library and so entirely virtual libraries are being created dead spaces with not a single book on the shelves if they are shelves at all this is problematic because it ignores a fundamental uh, characteristic of, of reading, which is that the text we read alters depending on the container. Moby Dick is not the same book read in paperback or in a deluxe edition, or, or for that matter, in Melville's manuscript. And it certainly isn't the same read on, on a Kindle or in a an electronic version, Gutenberg or whichever. You, um, your fiction relates back to your Latin American, South American background, particularly All Men Are Liars, published in 2010. You have this great line, lying, that is the great theme of South American literature. Let's talk a little bit, since we're talking about the specificity of literary cultures, about your Latin American literature. I would begin by saying that there is no Latin American literature, all labels lie, and that uh, I use the term very deliberately in, in the novel in an ironic way because all labels are, are false because they simply stem from our lazy thinking because we don't want to consider the literature of Argentina or Venezuela and then in Argentina, the literature of province of Córdoba and the city of Buenos Aires and so on. And even within any geographical context, if you take London, for instance, how do you uh, uh, compare the writing of Marina Warner to the writing of Ian McEwan? I mean, uh, they belong to two separate imaginative worlds. However, for the sake of university professors and uh, library cataloging, uh, I will accept the term <laughs> Latin American literature. And, and in many of the writers of Latin American countries, you find the theme of inventing an identity of creating a mythology for countries that are not very old and that in most cases have turned their backs on their uh, native past, on the indigenous past. Mexico is one example, but it is far removed from uh, the rest of, of Latin America. So 
Uh, I do find that uh, writers uh, such as uh, Borges or Garcia Marquez, to name the two best known to an English audience, lie, but lie, as Cocteau said, to tell the truth. He said, I, I'm a lie that tells the truth. And literature is that. You make up stories uh, because usually language is not accurate enough to tell uh, the experience of a truth. So you tell stories as a kind of metaphor for that truth. And so Borges in a poem called The Mythological Founding of Buenos Aires takes elements of history but um, invents his own story for the founding of Buenos Aires, which he says, to me it's a fairy tale that Buenos Aires had a beginning. I feel that she's as eternal as water and air. Alberto Mangel there, bringing an end to this podcast from the Jaipur Literature Festival and achieving what all good book festivals aim to do, to send us back to our books. I happen to have brought Naipaul's A House for Mr Biswas along with me. I'll be reading it on the plane back to England. For now, from me, Claire Armistead, goodbye. For more great downloads, go to theguardian.com slash audio.